They took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests. The elders and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another not made with hands. Yet even their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit on him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, Prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You were with that Nazarene, Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entrance. When the servant girl saw him there, she said, to, to the, she said again to those standing around them, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing, next, near to, those standing near said to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately the cock crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken to him. Before the cock crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. Great, thank you, Jamie, for reading for us. And yeah, it's really great to be here. It's um, quite sad that I have to be here in these circumstances where I can't meet you uh, all uh, personally. Uh, But hopefully we'll be able to do that uh, again one day. And I want to start off with a question if this works. Oh, wait, oh. Yeah. There we go. Whoops. I think I did it backwards. <laughs> Sorry. There we go. I've got it working now. Great. Uh, we love technology, don't we? So I want to start off with a question. Uh, how do we cope with failure? Now, to fail is not a nice experience at all, and to feel like a failure is an awful feeling. It can range from the small, like losing a game, to the big, like letting a loved one down in a big way. And there is a whole range in between. Now, there's lots of of ways we can cope depending on the situation. We can ignore it, we can bury it deep down, we can convince ourselves it doesn't matter. Uh, We can convince ourselves it's not our fault. Uh, We could use it to spur ourselves on and achieve more and better things. Lots of ways. But how do we cope when we fail in our Christian lives? When we sin? When we fail to do what we should have done? 
when we're feeling weak and like failures in our Christian lives and we've let God down, what do we do? Is it okay to do those things I just mentioned? Do we think, okay, I'll, I'll feel sorry for, sorry for myself for a bit and then it'll be okay? Uh, do we think, I'll try much harder and do better? Or do we think, oh, it doesn't really matter. Oh, well, better luck next time. No biggie. God loves me, right? Well, hopefully today in this section of Mark's gospel we're going to look at, we'll see how to cope when we fail in the Christian life. But first, a bit of context. We're entering the finale of Mark's gospel. All the narrative has been leading up to this point as Jesus heads towards the cross. In the previous sections of Mark's gospel, we see what his death entails. It's a sacrificial death that is going to receive the wrath of God, God's punishment for sin, as he takes the cup, which we saw in the Garden of Gethsemane last week. He has just been betrayed by Judas and abandoned by his disciples, and that's where we enter the story. And there are two trials going on in this section. And first, we're going to look at Jesus' trial. And from this, we should, and this is my first point, trust Jesus, seeing how he's committed to his mission. Trust Jesus, seeing how he's committed to his mission. Jesus, after he's arrested, is taken into custody and put on trial. Now, I'm no lawyer, and I've never watched any courtroom dramas like Suits or Judge Judy, but it's very clear that this isn't a normal trial. In fact, it's a sham trial. First of all, it takes place at night. Jesus is arrested and is immediately put on trial. And the start of chapter 15 uh, says that Jesus was handed over to Pilate in the morning. Now, trials at night are not normal. They are dodgy. Uh, second, Jesus was vastly outnumbered in this trial. He had no legal team with him. Uh, he was all alone. And he was put in front of the most powerful people in a country called the Sanhedrin. Have a look at verse 53. They took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests, the elders and the teachers of the law came together. The Sanhedrin, these people were the top dogs of the Jewish people at the time. Uh, it would be like today, being thrust into the House of Commons, facing off against every MP, including the Prime Minister and the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Now, how scary would that be? And not only is this a really intimidating courtroom, thirdly, the people putting Jesus on trial already have an agenda to kill him. Look at verse 55. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. So not only is it the dead of night, not only on your, on your own against the whole House of Commons, but they are also actively seeking to get you killed. Fourth, false evidence is being brought against Jesus. We see this in verse 56 and 57. So not only is it the dead of night and you're on your own against the whole house of commons who are out for your blood, but they are also making up evidence to put you to death. This is a massively, massively unfair trial that Jesus is going through. And to make things even worse, Jesus is completely innocent, completely innocent. And even though they make up evidence against Jesus, it's not good enough to show that Jesus is guilty. Have a look at verse uh, uh, 56. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements didn't agree. 
and the next verse, verse 57, then some stood up and gave this false evidence. And, uh, sorry, this, faith, this false testimony against him. And it finishes in verse 59 by saying, yet even their testimony did not agree. Jesus is so innocent that even fake evidence can't make him guilty. So imagine it, going back to my example from earlier. It's the dead of night. You're in the House of Commons. Everyone is out for your blood. They're making up fake evidence to try and get you killed, even though you are totally innocent. How would you react? I would be so scared and probably angry, pleading my innocence, refuting the fake evidence, hoping that they'll see the errors of their way and have no choice but to let me go. But how does Jesus react? It's very strange. He doesn't answer their questions, apart from one which we'll talk about soon. It's very surprising, and even the high priest who is orchestrating this sham trial is surprised about it. After the false accusations are made against Jesus, have a look at verse uh, 60. The high priest says, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? He's sort of saying, come on, what have you got to say for yourself? These are some pretty serious charges. Well, verse 61, but Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. He doesn't answer their questions. He doesn't open his mouth. Even though they're making stuff up against him and slandering him, he doesn't open his mouth. How different to us when things which are not true are said against us. How quickly do we open our mouths? You can't stop us knowing that it's untrue and false. Yeah, and despite Jesus' silence, the prosecution's case is falling apart. They can't pin the death penalty on him. So shockingly, Jesus hands it to them. And he does this by speaking the truth. When asked if he is the Messiah, Jesus confirms it. Look halfway through verse 61. Uh, Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, throughout Mark's gospel, we've been seeing, seeing the pile of evidence for Jesus being the Messiah stacking up, and here Jesus confirms it and warns them that he will be back to judge the Sanhedrin. Here we see that Jesus is still in control of circumstances, even though it doesn't seem like that. He looks very weak and powerless in this situation, but he's the one who decides to go to the cross. And he says that he has the authority to come back and judge as the Messiah, even though they are here judging him. Jesus is still in control. Well, this is enough for the Sanhedrin. They accuse Jesus of being a blasphemer and sentence him to death and treat him terribly, like in verse 65, where they spit on him, blindfold him, beat him, and mock him. Utter contempt and disrespect. But why does Jesus allow this to happen? Why let himself be sentenced to death and treated terribly? But it has to do with Jesus' mission. Jesus is committed to his mission. Jesus has said many times that he had to go to the cross that he must. He predicts it three times in Mark's gospel, in 8.31, 9.31, and 10.33 to 34. 
And let me read the first of those to you. 8.31 uh, says, He, Jesus, then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. The Son of Man must suffer many things. He must be killed. For Jesus, this wasn't some optional activity. It was needed of him. This is why he came. Jesus is committed to his mission. But what will it achieve? Why let himself die? Well, earlier in the chapter, in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see that Jesus is going to take the cup, the cup of God's wrath, God's right punishment for sin. Jesus is going to take that cup. He also compares his death to the Passover lamb at the Last Supper. The Passover lamb, which we see back in the book of Exodus, is the substitute which is killed for the sins of the people so that God's wrath and judgment would pass over the people and not fall on them. And back in Mark 10, 45, Jesus says, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, Jesus' death is a substitutionary death bearing the wrath of God for sinful people. Jesus' death takes the punishment from God in place of sinful people. And Jesus is committed to this. He's not backing away or losing his nerve. Even under fierce and scary circumstances, he is faithfully and unswervingly going to the cross. He doesn't crack under the pressure. Trust Jesus, seeing how he's committed to his mission. And now we move on to the second half of this section. And here I hope that we see that we should trust Jesus to rescue faithless sinners. Trust Jesus to rescue faithless sinners. Now Jesus, as he was arrested, was deserted by his disciples. But there is a hint of hope which is quickly dashed in verse 54. Uh, have a look. Peter followed Jesus at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. He follows Jesus, but at a distance. He enters the courtyard, but goes no further. When Jesus is all alone before the Sanhedrin, Peter warms himself by a fire. There is still something there from Peter. He hasn't deserted Jesus like the others. He's here in the courtyard. And whilst Peter is warming himself by the fire, he goes through a trial of his own. But it's very different to uh, Jesus' trial. Peter gets questioned, but it's not by a group of the most powerful men in the country. He gets questioned by a solitary servant girl. Look at verse uh, 66. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said. Now, I've known some intimidating young ladies in my time, but Mark is clearly showing a contrast here between Jesus and Peter's treatment. And look again at the question the girl asks. She's accusing Peter of a true thing. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus. Jesus was being slandered and having fake evidence used against him, and Jesus remained silent. 
So how does Peter react to a true thing being said about him? He lies. Verse 68, but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entrance. Peter cracks under the pressure and is scared to be associated with Jesus, so he denies having anything to do with him. And not only does he deny Jesus one time, he does it three times, the second time in verse 69 and the third in verse 71. And each time he's been asked or accused with the truth of, the, of his allegiance with Jesus. And every time he denies it. And the third time he even starts swearing and cursing about the fact that he doesn't know Jesus. And then verse 72. Immediately the cock crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken to him. Before the cock crows twice you'll disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. Peter remembers Jesus' words that he would disown Jesus. And what makes it even more tragic is that in response to uh, this prediction, Peter is very confident of himself and even dismissive of it. Uh, Look back to uh, verse 30 in chapter 14. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, Today, yes, tonight, before the cock crows twice, you yourself would disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. This Peter, who said he would die with Jesus, who was so confident of himself, has denied him three times under pressure from a single servant girl. It's so tragic, and this episode has reduced Peter to a weeping mess where he has recognized his weakness and his unfaithfulness. He was so sure of himself, but now he has been brought low. Now, before we dismiss Peter or judge him, we need to take a look at ourselves. Are we that different I'm sure that there are a lot of things we can think about before we became Christians, which we're ashamed of. I can. But what about after we had become Christians? Are there times where we've behaved like Peter, where we've been ashamed of Jesus, not standing up for the gospel, even denying to be Christian? That friend asks you what you did this weekend. Do you mention that you watched church? talking about Christianity with a friend, do you talk about Jesus or do you just use the word God generally? One time a workman came round to fix my shower and I mentioned that I wanted to be a vicar at some point in the future. His response was uh, surprise, probably because of yeah, how young I was, wanting to be a vicar. And, he's, and he asked me, oh, is, is there good money in that? Now, I had a decision to make. Do I just say, yeah, yeah, you can usually get a house as well to save a bit of face and show that I'm not an idiot for wanting to do that? Or do I say, not really, I'm not in it for the money. I want people to hear about Jesus. Well, I wish I did better in that situation. And you can probably think of similar situations yourself where you have said things and acted in ways 
you shouldn't have as a Christian. And maybe there's some of us here who are thinking, well, I've never denied Christ. Uh, Can I ask you, have you ever been in a situation where you're tempted to feel ashamed about him? Are you playing it too safe? Are you like those other disciples who didn't even make it to the courtyard to be questioned? Maybe that's something to think about. Now, it can be tempting to think, yeah, we've messed up. God won't love me. He wants nothing to do with me now, surely. What do I do now that I have failed? How do I cope? Do I ignore it? Do I try harder? Does it actually matter? Well, take heart and come back to Jesus. Say sorry for what you have done and trust in his death at the cross. He loves you so much and wants relationship with you. That's why he forgives you and is willing to forgive you over and over. And when we come to him, Jesus doesn't say, get on with it, come on, do better. He doesn't say, oh, it's all right, it doesn't matter. He says, I know you've messed up and have sinned against me, but I love you and I forgive you. I died for you. Peter did one of the worst things that a Christian could do, yet Jesus still goes to the cross for him, knowing what Peter was going to do. And this is not the end for Peter. As Peter comes to receive the forgiveness that is on offer for him, it transforms him to be one of the leading figures in the early church, from denier of Jesus to preacher of Jesus. What a transformation. And Jesus knows our sins and the way we mess up too, yet he still died for us. He is committed to rescuing sinners. And this forgiveness is on offer for everything, and it's always available. No sin is too great. Trust Jesus. He is committed to his uh, mission to rescue faithless sinners. And for those listening who wouldn't call themselves Christian or who are not sure if they are, see how kind, gracious, and loving the Lord Jesus is, willing to go through a horrible death to take God's punishment for those who reject him and are ashamed of him so that you can be forgiven and brought back into relationship with God. That offer is open to you and you don't need to shape up before accepting. You can be weak and failing. Jesus won't turn you away. And that relationship is open for you because of his work and his love for you. And for those of us who would call themselves Christian, uh, maybe you're feeling weak and faithless at the moment, or yeah, we're probably going to feel that way one day. When we're feeling like failures, how do we cope? Come back to Jesus. Trust Jesus, seeing how he's committed to his mission to rescue faithless sinners. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that Jesus is committed to his mission to rescue faithless sinners. Thank you that he was willing to endure the pain and shame of dying on a cross in order to rescue us, to rescue us who are often faithless towards him. We praise you for that. And please help us when we are feeling weak in our walk with you, when we have failed. Help us to not run away or 
just redouble our efforts, but help us to come back to Jesus and trust him, knowing that his death covers our failings. Help us to trust Jesus more and more in our walks with you. Amen.